0: 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. I was really blessed. I got to hear. I didn't get to listen to Jeremy's yet, but I was catching the latter end of Justin's message from last week. It was excellent. So, but I am super glad to be back with you guys tonight. As we can continue our journey through 2 Kings. Remember the whole theme of, of both of the first and second Kings is Covenants and character. We're looking at the promises God made to his people and uh, his character, how he doesn't change. And then we've looked at the promises that God's people made to him and how they weren't faithful to that and how their character did change. And so when we get to chapter two, in chapter one, we closed it with the death of Ahab's oldest son, Ahaziah. And since Ahaziah did not have any sons to take the throne from him, it passed to Ahab's second son, his brother, Jehoram. Uh, But before we get to Jehoram's reign, a very important event occurs in chapter 2. Elijah retires. Oh, it's not your normal retirement, but the point remains. Elijah's not going to be God's voice to this wicked dynasty anymore. And so, the Lord raises up Elisha to take Elijah's place. And Elisha answers, God's call. So chapter two, we begin in verse one. It says, and it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Terry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. So Here we find that the writer reveals that God had a plan for Elijah to close out his ministry. It came to pass when the Lord would, when the Lord wanted to do this, this was God's plan, to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that this chain of events of this chapter happens. Now, this idea that God's going to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind is not saying, Elijah, you're going to die in a hurricane. The idea here is that God is going to do something unique with Elijah, something that most of us, well, none of us will experience unless Jesus comes back in our day and age. The author introduces this transition of ministry by explaining why it needed to happen. There was going to be this tempestuous storm that was going to remove Elijah from the scene. That would be a little interesting, you know, if, you know, we'll learn later on that Elijah knew this was going to happen. You know, you wake up one day and you're reading, you know, spending time with the Lord and all of a sudden the Lord's like, Elijah, you know, here's the, here's my word for today. All right. Am I going to talk to Jehoram? No. You're going to get taken up to heaven in a mighty storm. All right. No more burritos that late at night. I mean, that's definitely not something we expect to hear. Sure, it wasn't anything he necessarily expected to hear. The Bible doesn't tell us why the Lord does this, but I can make a guess. At the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we have in the last two verses of the Old Testament an interesting prophecy. It says in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he, Elijah, shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth. With a curse. Now, Jesus taught us that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy to some degree. He said, If you can receive it, he's Elijah, but obviously he was a different person. So this prophecy will not be completely fulfilled until the time just before Jesus' second coming. This is why many Bible teachers believe with great confidence that Elijah is one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. Now, who those two people are is certainly not worth arguing over. But I do believe that God was preserving Elijah for this future ministry. Elijah, you're getting old, can't let you die. Got more work for you to do, but not in this venue. You're going to get a transfer. Now, does, I mean, does God need to use Elijah this way? Of course not. So that's why I say, I don't think it's worth arguing over. God could pick anybody to be the two witnesses. But Elijah has been a hero to Jewish people for over two millennia. He is still revered today as one of Israel's greatest prophets. Well, around the same time this miraculous event is going to occur in Elijah's life, God probably, in my mind, preserving him for a future ministry, during the same time that God reveals this to Elijah, Elijah and his Padawan, Elisha, traveled to Gilgal, where one of the prophet schools was located. Now, we're going to see that the way that this chapter is going to run is that it's going to be, they're going to visit school after school after school after school until they've done it. So, this is kind of like Elijah's farewell tour, in a sense. And so, as they're prepping to go from Gilgal, which is the first school they visited, to Bethel, in verse 2, Elijah tells Elijah and says, Stay here. Stay at the school here. That's my, my request, because the Lord has sent me to Bethel. I, I, this is my farewell tour, not yours. You don't need to travel all over, trapes all over Israel with me. Stay here. You know, keep studying, you know, whatever. It's an odd request, though. I mean, Elijah has taken Elijah with him pretty much everywhere he's went up to this point. He is his assistant. He is… You know, he, God told him, this is your successor… So it is an odd thing to leave him behind like he's just another student, but it's not like going to check in with the prophet school at Bethel as a special trip either. So I guess maybe one might think it was no big deal, but Elijah thinks it's a big deal and he says, no, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Surely as God's alive, which is the strongest oath an Israeli can make, and as sure as you're still alive, I'm not leaving you, buddy. Why? Why stay here? Why say I won't? I don't know for sure. But we are meant to be left with the idea when we finish verse 2 that something fishy is going on. What's going on here? And verse 3 gives us our answer. Verse 3, it says, And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elijah. So as they arrive, they all come out not to meet Elijah, but to go pull aside Elisha. And they say to him, do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he, Elisha, said, Yeah, I know it. Hold you your peace. Now, the sons of the prophets, these are the students at the various schools. This was something set up by Samuel long ago because the whole the reason the prophets needed to be around was because the Levites weren't doing their job. God had set up the tribe of Levite to be the, the group that would serve in the temple, the tabernacle at the time, and they would also teach the people the Word of God. Well, when some of Israel started to go astray, and they weren't supporting the Levites financially, the Levites said, well, we're going to go to normal jobs like everybody else. We've got to take care of our families, which was the wrong answer because God was their provider, and they needed to trust Him. So, the problem got worse as people were being disobedient to the Lord. You know, the Levites abandoned the ministry of teaching, and so now the Word of God isn't out there either. And so, Israel was just getting to this place or when Samuel became the judge, the judge before him had been a man named Eli, whose own sons were just vile people. And so he set up the school of prophets to learn how to teach, to speak forth God's Word, to instruct the people in the law of God, and then to travel throughout Israel to do so well, these students at the school, they come out to meet Elijah and say, don't you realize that your master is going to be taken away today? I mean, this is it. This is the farewell tour, man. Why are you walking in here and you're not a mess? And I love Elisha's response. He goes, I know it. Yeah, I know it. I realize. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a dunce. I'm not ignorant of this fact. Now, this is the first time we learned that God had revealed either to Elijah or to others, what was going to happen. Which brings up an important question. How would you respond if God told you the day you were going to heaven? Yeah, your reaction is why God doesn't tell us when we're going to heaven. Seriously. I think of times in people in the Bible when they thought they were going to die. I think the most famous one is Isaac. Remember Isaac? I'm going to die, son. He calls in Esau, the oldest son, and he decides I'm going to give him the blessing. Wait a second, Isaac. God already said when the kids were in your wife's womb that the younger would be ruling over the older. The older would serve the younger. That The one that the covenant promises were going to come through was going to be Jacob, not Esau. But Isaac got it into his head. There's no way God can use Jacob. He's a a sissy. He's not a man. You know, he's not a guy. My Esau, I mean, he goes out, he hunts, you know, he brings me food I like that's the quality of a guy that God can use. He acted foolishly, thinking he was going to die, thinking he had to make a decision based on what was in front of him now because he thought his time was over. He disobeys God, offers a blessing to Esau instead of Jacob, and his whole family goes down the tubes. Truth is, he didn't die for another 20 years. All his worrying was for nothing. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't people in the Bible who, like Elijah, knew exactly when they were going to go. I think a good example of that, well, Jesus is the best example, of course, but I think a good example of this is Jacob. I love the end of Jacob's story. Like, people ask me all the time, like, who's your favorite character in Genesis? I'm like, easy, Jacob. Total failure, total loser, always trying to do things his own way. His name means heel catcher, dirty sneaky thief, right? Right? What's your name? Dirty Sneaky Thief. In fact, God asked him that question. What's your name? And prior to that point, he'd he'd been just, he would always make the best of a bad situation, and then God takes his hip out when he's wrestling with him. What's your name? He finally admits it. Dirty Sneaky Thief. Do whatever you got to do to get ahead. Get out of the trouble you put yourself in. Take care of yourself. And I love the Lord. He goes, not anymore. Your name's going to be Israel now. You're going to be ruled by God you're going to be governed by God now. Everything's going to change. And it did, slowly, but it did. Jacob was so in tune with the Lord at the end of his life and perfectly okay with whatever God threw his way, that when it came time for him to die, he summons in all of his sons, exhorts them all, gives this amazing prophecy of their future, worships the Lord in the very instrument that was a reminder of his failure, staff, that he had to use because he couldn't walk correctly. And then literally, it says, after he got done worshiping, he went into bed, pulled the covers up, and breathed his last. So in tune with the Lord. That's kind of how Elijah's handling these, his last days. I need to finish the job that God gave me and finish it well. And so here's, here's actually the real question. Is at your heart, even though you don't know the day when God's going to call you home. I just want to finish well. I was at a retreat this weekend, and I was listening to a guy teach on the, the power of the resurrection. And, you know, that we, you know I, want, I want to know him, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. And he asked a really interesting question. He goes, how did Jesus die? And of course, you know, people answered violently, unjustly, all the various things. And, and he said… You know, the one thing you guys didn't say was obediently. Huh. I, kinda, I mean, I knew that, but it kind of hit me in that verse that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the, the fellowship of his sufferings. So it's not that I have to suffer like Jesus did, but I need to share in how he handled his sufferings, which means obediently, being made conformable to his death. It was so cool to, to kind of like get that, that idea, that the, the, the job is not like, I don't need to finish like somebody else finished, but I need to finish well, obediently, for whatever the race that God set me on. I love Paul. He says, I've, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. Not finishing your race or someone else's race. Didn't finish Timothy's race or Peter's race. He finished his race. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Literally there, the idea is it's a personal thing. And henceforth, there is later for me, this reward is our heart to finish the job God gave us to do well. well. These students are not handling Elijah's retirement well. They badger Elisha because he's acting like everything's fine. But Elisha doesn't let them move him from his task. He says, yeah, I know it. And you guys need to hold your peace, which means be silent. Stop talking like that. Everything's going according to God's plan. Sometimes we panic because our heroes retire or die. What are we going to do? Who will we follow now? Or sometimes we panic because the status quo changes or we fear what life will be like moving forward. We can't let this happen. I think Elijah's reaction is the right one. Stop trying to figure things out. Stay the course. Shut up. (laughs) You know, stay the course. If there's a good truth you want to remind yourself of. It's this: Circumstances around us never change our marching orders. They just don't. They just don't. Circumstances around us never change our marching orders. Verse four, Elijah said unto him, his assistant Elijah, he says, "Elijah, tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho, I'm going to the next school." And he, Elisha, said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Again, I'm not sure why Elijah keeps trying to leave Elisha behind. Maybe he's concerned that whatever this tempestuous storm is will harm Elisha, or perhaps he thinks that Elijah has nothing left to learn from him. Get to work, man. Or maybe he's even testing Elisha to see if he will embrace God's call to be his successor. Maybe he's testing him. Will you follow this through to the end? The Bible's silent on Elijah's reasons, but Elisha is adamant about sticking by his side to the next location. And so, verse 5, they go to Jericho. And verse 5 and 6 are just a repeat. The sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he answered, Yeah, I know it. Be silent. Hold you your peace. The scene at Jericho repeats the events at Bethel. The students are concerned about Elijah's apparent lack of concern. It's funny. I, I get that a lot. You know, someone will call me up and or they'll schedule an appointment, and they say, "What are you doing about this?" I'm like, I, I can't do anything. I said, but he can do something. So we're going to look to him. We're going to do what his word says. We're going to follow him. We're just going to stay the course. Can I give you another piece of advice? Avoid the really bad decisions. Seriously. Like you want to have a, a good life, just stay away from the, the dumb ones. Because we, we have enough we have enough we have enough problems, right? We have enough small things we go through every day that are challenges and struggles for us. Like, what is it Jesus said? He said, you know, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Like, i got enough on my plate that I've got to handle the right way, and, and the, there is a great possibility I will probably not handle it at times the right way. So I've got enough on my plate I've got to trust God for. What about this situation that's going on in Sudan right now? Well, I, I, I know there are believers in Sudan. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going I'm to pray for an end to the conflict. Okay, uh, Ukraine, we're not flying a flag over the church right? we got a job to do. Our marching orders haven't changed, right? There are good things that can sidetrack us, but that doesn't mean they're the one thing we're supposed to be focused on, which is knowing Him, making Him known. Doesn't mean the things that we could pursue are not good things, but this is the thing that we're going to focus on. I... I have a lot of admiration for Elijah here because, like, by the time I got to Jericho, I'd be like, "Don't even talk to me." <laughs> I'd be like, I've been to three schools already, and all y'all just lost your mind. You remember when Moses became frustrated with God's people and he struck the rock? Why did he do that? He did that because he became tired of the repeated whining. He grew frustrated with the people's slow growth in trusting God. A leader can't do that and lead well. Because God is not frustrated by our slow growth or our repeated struggles. Isn't that a funny thing? Because we go to the Lord and we're like, oh, I can't even pray because, you know, I did it again. You know, I, I had this failure again. I can't even read my Bible today. Like, like God is frustrated with us, like He's like, no, well, you know, I, 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 mean, I just had higher expectations for you. No, no, I'm, you can pray all you want today, but I'm not answering anything. Not until you fix this situation. Come back and talk to me next week. No. The Lord's like, come, come. I, I know you blew it again. Like I've never come to the Lord and poured out my heart, confessing my sin to Him, and Him just be like, yeah, I don't want to hear it. I'm really frustrated. Like you, this has been going on for like two weeks. The problem is is sometimes it's years, the battles that we go through sometimes. He sympathizes. He, can't, he is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he was in all points tempted like we are. Now, the cool part is, we talked about it this morning, he never sinned. So, there's a promise of victory if we just keep walking with Him. Because that's what the enemy tries to do. He says, no, 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 no. God's frustrated with you. Can't go to Him anymore. You're going to have to fix this on your own first. And of course, what does that do? It puts us in that repeated cycle of trusting ourselves, leaning on our own understanding, and so our paths aren't straight and we fall on our face. The Lord says, come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Right? He doesn't say, come, if it's not the seventh time you've done this. Come, unless it's the 14th time you've done this. God is not frustrated by our slow growth, our repeated struggles. Therefore, a leader cannot become frustrated by people's slow growth or repeated struggles. You know, God loves us when we struggle. He bends close to help. He inclines His ear. He is full of compassion and patience. In Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty four, you know, Elijah's gonna be a leader, and and this is a requirement for pastors in Second Timothy two twenty four, but the principle applies to anyone who's in leadership. It says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, the word there means to quarrel. Don't start a fight with people. How many times have you come forward for prayer about this? It's gotta be like the eighteenth time. When are you gonna get it right? Don't pick a fight with people. No, the servant of the Lord must be gentle unto all men, ready to teach, ready to give the lesson again. What happened? All right, well, let's talk about what the Word says. Let's talk about how, how we grow through this, right? That, that's what you do. It's like, <laughs> my kids did some interesting things when they were little. One of them had a fascination with poisonous substances, whether it be makeup or cleaning supplies, whatever, things that you should not ingest. But they had this curiosity tick about them that they were constantly finding things no matter where we put them. And then we're on the line with poison control or whatever it is. What do we need to do? It's frustrating as a parent because you want them to be okay. But like you, you don't sit down with a two-year-old and just be like, you're the dumbest person ever. I mean, every time we talk about this, why do you think we put them up there? You know? No, you sit down and you go, hey, listen, you can't do this. This is bad for you. You're going to get sick. Do you like being sick? No. Okay. Well, then let's not do this again. Okay. No, and then you're back again two weeks later. And hopefully, at some point, they learn not to put their finger in the thing you're not supposed to put your finger in, not to touch the thing you're not supposed to touch, right? That's the hope. We had another child like to color on their their arms all the time. And, you know, what do you do? We say, listen, you can't play with the markers, all right? You can't. You're out. You're out. It's done. It's like the fourth time you've colored on yourself with markers. You're out. Go find somewhere else to live. But we act like the Lord will do that with us sometimes. Now, sometimes you got to discipline, like with that particular child, the markers got thrown out and there was a huge tantrum as she watched the markers go into the trash can. Thought we'd destroyed her entire life. (laughs) So the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men ready to teach, patient, in meekness, which means being humble, instructing those that oppose themselves. They don't realize they're fighting against themselves. They wouldn't do it if that was the case. And here's the goal. If God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they might recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who've been taken captive by Him at His will. If you aspire to be a leader, you must not become frustrated with God's people's slow growth or their repeated struggles. Christian leaders are not whipcrackers driving God's sheep ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. You ever see sheep pulling like a… a? a, like a I go up to St. Augustine with my wife every once in a while, and I see the horses pulling the carts, the little carriages. I've never seen sheep pulling any. <laughs> never seen a guy up there going… You don't do that with sheep. We… Lead from the front, going deeper with Jesus ourselves first, and then beckoning for others to join us. This way. Come this way. When God's sheep are hesitant, we teach, we exhort, we correct, we come alongside. We love through it all, just like Jesus loves us through it all. If your idea of Christian leadership is, you know, telling your kid or your wife or Those who attend your Bible study and going, that's where you need to go. You should be over here. You signed up for the wrong job. Because your job is to get over there and be like, come here. Come. Here, let me show you how to get here. And grab their hand and you help them get there. Isn't this great? And then you, you go further and then you help them get there with you. That's how we lead how Jesus leads us. Shepherds lead their sheep. They stay the course. They go find the sheep when they're astray. They bring them back home, and then they repeat that process over and over and over and over. Well, in verse 6, it says, Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray you here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two went on. So Elijah again tells Elijah to stay, but we already know how that's going to go. Elijah follows him, and they head towards the Jordan. There's no more schools to visit. The Jordan River is due east of the city of Jericho, but there's no school that direction, which means this is the end of the farewell tour. So verse 7. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and they stood to view afar off. The Jordan River is only about five miles from Jericho. It wouldn't be a, a long journey, it would take less than two hours. Uh, to accompany uh, the two of them there. But it says they they watched from afar off. They don't go all the way to the river, but they do stick around to see what happens when he gets to the river. Verse 8, and Elijah took his mantle, and he wrapped it together, and he smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither so that they too went over on dry ground. I mentioned this earlier in 1 Kings, but Zechariah 13.4 implies that the prophets wore like a special cloak as a sign of their role, that they were a prophet in Israeli society, Zechariah 13.4. I have to bring this up because, well, we'll talk about it in a second. But let me suffice suffice it to say this first. There was no power in the prophet's mantle, okay? It's not like when you graduated, you know, they went into this safe that was like glowing, and they, they opened it up and reached in and said, here's your mantle, and it was like sparkling and floating in the air. There's no magic mantle, okay? There is no power in the mantle, just like there was no power in Moses' staff. But just like Moses' staff was a symbol of his position, the mantle was the symbol of the prophet's position. And so just as God told Moses to stretch his staff over the Red Sea to part it, God must have told Elijah to do that with his cloak. And so he wrapped, literally rolled up his cloak, and then he smacked the waters with it, and they divided. The waters went one way and the other way, and then they walked over on dry ground. It's the same miracle Moses oversaw when the Egyptians had trapped the Israelites, remember? He put his staff over the Red Sea, and boom, water went this way, this way, and they walked through on dry land. Joshua oversaw this kind of miracle when Israel invaded the promised land. And so this is now the third time we've seen a body of water parted and they walk on dry ground. It always makes me chuckle that people try to explain these miracles away through the use of, like, somebody dammed the water, you know, and it just happened to be at the same time, or weird weather patterns blew the water back. Or by saying, well, the body of water was very shallow. I love the the kid who uh, the story about the kid who was in school and the, the teacher was telling him, you know, listen, you know, the place where the… the um, the uh uh, the israelites crossed the red sea it was really not the red sea it was a sea of reeds and it was only like two inches deep and and the kid goes really he goes that's amazing and the guy goes why that's not a miracle he goes god drowned the entire egyptian army in two inches of water It always tickles me that way. they try to make this, like, not a miracle. I I always say, well, I don't care how deep it was. How did it automatically become dry? All three times. In every way, any way you want to cut it, this is a supernatural event. A miracle from the Lord, not a natural occurrence. Water stopped flowing and the ground was dry so that the passage across would be safe. This is only a problem if you don't believe God is omnipotent or that God is not involved in our lives. The Bible teaches both of those things are true. If you believe that, then everything else is easy. Well, I am totally sure this had a powerful impact upon the students. I don't think I would ever forget seeing something like this. say, how come we haven't seen the water parted? It only happened three times in literally like 1,500 years of history. I believe God is all-powerful, and I believe He is actively involved in His creation. And maybe I haven't seen the water parted, but I have seen God do the impossible too many times for it to be a coincidence. Too many times. That's just my life. That's just my little anecdotal evidence that I have. Therefore, I believe in the mighty power of prayer, far beyond my ability to solve a problem. And I believe in taking God at His word and standing on His promises, even though my faith is sometimes weak in the everyday trust part. Like, I believe it intellectually, even though I do struggle sometimes with the everyday stuff. How about you? I mean, do you believe that God's omnipotent? Do you believe that He's actively involved in our lives, that we can pray to Him, and that he would, he would answer our prayers? Like, if He wanted us to do this, that we could? I do. I believe with all my heart. Well, again, I don't think I would ever forget seeing something like this, and it was Elijah's last message from the Lord to these students. And the Lord's saying to these students, I did this for your ancestors when they left Egypt. I did it when your ancestors entered the promised land. I could do it any time I please. So don't ever think that things have gotten so far out of hand that I can't make a way where there isn't one that you can see right now. Well, while this is Elijah's last message to those students, he's not alone when he crosses that river, which means Elisha didn't stay to see a body of water parted. That's not why he hung out this far. Elisha still has something he wants from his mentor. And so, when we get to verse 9, Elijah turns to him and says in verse 9, it came to pass when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I be taken away from you. And Elisha said, I pray you, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he, Elijah, said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from here, it shall be unto you. But if not, then it shall not be so. The writer doesn't tell us why Elijah asked this question, but Elijah either wants to leave his assistant with some blessing, or he senses that Elijah wants something from him. Truth is, it even could be both of those things, that he wants to bless him, and he thinks Elijah wants something. So he asked him, what can I do for you? And Elisha asks, he says, I pray you that a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, have you ever heard someone say, like, especially if it's a situation like where something weird's going on at the church and they're claiming that God's doing supernatural things, and you say, hey, where's that in the Bible? And they'll say, well, Jesus said that we would do greater things than Him. Look up that word greater. It means greater in number, not greater in power. It's greater in amount. And of course we're going to do greater things in amount than Jesus because Jesus was only around for three years and he only had a limited ministry in Israel. The number of things that God's people have done all throughout history is, if you count them up number-wise, it's far more than Jesus did in just three years of his ministry. But sometimes because we don't understand what a word is, it's easy for somebody to get up there and confuse us. And with the same phrase here, it's easy to go, wow, you know, Elijah wanted to be doubly as powerful as Elijah. That's not what he's asking. When he, Israeli fathers doled out their land to their sons, the double portion was the blessing assigned to a firstborn son. Elijah is saying, Master, you've, you've gone, teacher, you've gone to all the schools to give them a final blessing, to say farewell to them. But I don't want to just be another student. I've been your personal assistant all this time. I share your heart for our people. I want to take up where you left off. I want to be your spiritual son. That's what I want. I want to be your successor. Give me, I want a double portion of your spirit. And again, people mess up like his spirit, the part of him, the whatever power was in his spirit would be doubled. That's not it at all. There's no power in my spirit. When he says, you know, a double portion of your spirit, you have to understand well, what is our spirit? Our spirit is the part of us that fellowships with God. God created human beings as triune beings body, soul, and spirit. My soul is my personality. It's the part of me that is most uniquely me, unfortunately. <laughs> That's why you can have twins who are nothing alike aside from their body appearance, different soul. My spirit is the part of me that fellowships with God. It was the part that died in Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. And it's the part of me that is dead before I came to Christ. That's why we call it being born again or born from above, spiritually born. I don't get a new soul when I'm saved. I don't get a new body when I'm saved immediately, at least. But my spirit is revived so that I can know the Lord now. I can fellowship with Him again. What Elijah is saying here is, I want to know and hear from God like you have. I want to serve God like you have. I want to be your spiritual son in a more unique way than just being your student. Now, some might accuse Elisha of thinking too highly of himself or of selfish ambition, and then some people celebrate it. I have heard some very silly notions preached from pulpits about this verse, that Elisha was asking to be twice as powerful or twice as effective as Elijah, and then they like to count out the miracles as if, like, that's proof. There's an entire theology in the charismatic third wave movement which claims gifted men of God can pass on their power to successors. Preachers tell stories of uh, how they waited at a pastor's deathbed or they were lined up at a dying evangelist's door to get their power. Guys, that has way more in common with shamanism and, and witchcraft than it does the Bible. And to be blunt, it reeks of selfish ambition. I, I was, don't do this. Don't go and search this. But I was, I did that. I was looking, I was trying to learn more about an individual who was an evangelist in the past. And all of a sudden, all these teachings popped up about these guys who claim that I got his mantle. And they talked about how they were all lined up at the door to the house so that when he died, they would rush in and try to get objects that he like, were important to him and whatever, and that that would, then they would get the power. Like the Lord's up there going, all right, well, if you want it, you better, you better knock everybody else out of the way to get it, like it's like the, the flower bouquet at like a wedding or whatever, you know? like you're tackling somebody. It's like, no, the power is mine. I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. Reeks of selfish ambition. In fact, what's interesting is the only time in the New Testament we see a person ask the apostles for their power is when Simon the sorcerer offers to pay Peter and John for the power of the Holy Spirit, and that was not a good thing. Power is not transferred through contact or proximity or being the first person to be around when someone dies. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us that the Spirit of God distributes the gifts of God as He wants. You, it's not about, I just, you know, I, got the, I was the first guy in when he breathed his last, you know, and I, I sucked in the air, and there it came in. I say this because I've heard people describe it that way. It's the Lord who chooses. And that's why Elijah tells his assistant that his request is a hard one. He says to him, he says, what you have asked is a hard thing, a difficult thing. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 17 describes this about another difficult thing. It says, oh, it talks about when Moses, when he sets up these judges and they're supposed to hear matters, and he says, listen, if it's too hard for you, bring it to me. That's what the same word here is. this is This is a difficult thing. And the reason it's difficult is I can't give you what you're asking for, Elijah. It's not my decision. Elijah wasn't in charge of who God called to succeed him. But I do think the reason that Elijah gives the answer he does is because the request wasn't a surprise to him. Because remember, God had already told Elijah that this young man would be a successor. 1 Kings 19, verse 16, he says, Go anoint Elisha to be your in room of prophet after you. So he says to him, He says, Listen, it's up to the Lord. And then he gives his final message from God. He says, if you see me when I'm taken from you, then you're the guy. But if not, you're not the guy. That didn't mean Elisha couldn't blink. Or that he had to make sure he was the only one to see Elijah be taken away or like be split. Like just some dude you know, walking with his pack and he's like, whoa, that's amazing. Now I'm a prophet. Stay away from silly teaching. I can't ever imagine a bunch of people clamoring to be the last person to see a prophet die, being the type of character God's looking for in a leader. Verse 11, came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elijah saw it and he cried out my father, my father the chariot of Israel the horsemen thereof and he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them in two pieces got what he asked for but his heart was still broken I wonder what the conversation was about while they walked. It's like a couple times you read in the Bible, it says, oh, and they talked, and you're like, what did they talk about? Can't wait to get to heaven and find out. If I had to guess, it was two people who love the Lord enjoying each other's company for the last time. But while they're having this conversation, God interrupts it, behold, which means, you know, boom, all of a sudden something happened. There appeared a chariot of fire, horses of fire. Ezekiel chapter 1 explains that God sits on a chariot throne, wreathed in fire. God's throne is not immobile. The kings back then, they would have chariot thrones sometimes. God's throne is a chariot throne. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 1. God is not immobile. He's not uninterested in the affairs of men. He's very involved in our affairs. Isaiah 66.15 says that God employs chariots and horses of fire in battle. Even though I can read all that, I still don't fully understand what that means. Like, I have lots of questions. Like, are the chariots empty? Because it's just horses and fire, cherry, fiery chariots? Are they being driven by angels? Or are the horses angelic-type beings? Like, what, Where? when did these horses get made? I don't know the answers to those questions. But for now, all we need to understand is that A fiery chariot pulled by fiery horses descends upon them. And I don't care if you're ready or not. When that happens, you're going to duck. And so it says it parted them asunder. It it, it means they, they separated. They spread out. Basically, Elijah went one way, and Elijah went the opposite way, ducking away from this. But as they went there, they dove in the opposite directions. It says a windstorm followed in their wake, and it was the windstorm, the whirlwind, that snatched Elijah away. And thus ends the Old Testament ministry of Elisha. We have spent quite a few chapters with this guy, this prophet, through all the ups and downs. The Bible says he was a man just like us, but one who did great things because he trusted the Lord's Word. You know, some people say, oh, I could never make the heavens not rain. I don't think the question should ever be, could I make the heavens close off rain. Rather, it should be, am I being obedient to what God's Word has told me to do? Because that's what God's Word, the message God gave to Elijah was do that, so that's what he needed to be obedient to. So, are, are we being obedient to what God has told us to do in His Word? Because the truth is, we can all follow in Elijah's footsteps by doing that, whether you're raising someone from the dead or you're loving your wife like Jesus loves the church. And while Elijah is in heaven now, this does not end his ministry, because even if he's not one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, we see Elijah alongside Moses. They both appear to Jesus on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, and they spoke with Jesus about his coming death on the cross. And so, again, I personally believe that Moses and Elijah still have a role to play as the two witnesses of Revelation. I think that is more evidence that they still have ministry to do. Some say, well, the second witness is probably Enoch, since he's the only one besides Elijah to be taken to heaven while he was still alive. And that, of course, is possible. But Moses and Elijah are the two most revered people to Israeli society. Enoch's not an Israelite. He's not. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. And I do find it interesting that God didn't want anyone doing anything with Moses' body after he died. There's that little obscure verse in Jude, verse 9, where it says that Michael the archangel and Satan were arguing over Moses' body. It's like one of those things the Bible just throws out, and it's like, have fun with that. I'm not saying anything else. It's like, you know, John, when he's writing, he's like, yeah, you know, there's this thing called the sin unto death you all know what that means. We move on. <laughs> I don't know what that means. There's a couple of times the Bible does that. I do find it interesting. So, God apparently wants Moses' body for something. So, well, as you can imagine, this event had to be traumatic for Elijah to see. And when we look at his reaction, that's what it seems like. He saw it. I mean, that was his answer to his prayer, right? And yet, He's heartbroken. He cries out. The word there cry. It's in the the intensified verb form in the Hebrew. It means to to raise a cry of wailing. My father, my father. Elijah had a family, but Elijah had become like a father to him, and now he's gone. He calls him the chariot of Israel and the horseman. Chariots were the premier weapon back then, a sign of strength, and you would call someone. Like a lot of times kings and and things are written about him. He was the chariot of his nation, you know. Elisha knew where the real strength in Israel had been for the last few years. Certainly was not in King Ahab and his sons. It was in this man who spoke God's word to God's people and now he was gone. What are we going to do now? It's interesting. Elijah... Shah had stayed the course, like the students, what are you going to do? Why are you upset? You know, and he's like, quiet. God knows what he's doing. But here in that moment, when it finally happens, it, it all slams into him. Grief, everything hits him. He took hold of his clothing and he it in two pieces. The word for take hold, it's the same word used when the angels grabbed Lot and his family and dragged them out of Sodom because they weren't going to leave. I mean, have you ever been that way? You're just so grief-stricken and worried and stressed out, and you just, everything tenses up. He rips his clothes in two. The intensity and the emotional pain, the concern for the future that Elisha felt was all channeled into this action of grief, the tearing in half of one's own clothes. If you've ever lost a loved one suddenly or if you experienced great trauma, you probably understand what he felt. Grief is difficult and trauma changes us. But if Elijah is going to be Elijah's successor, he can't stay there in his grief. And so in verse 13, and I'll try to wrap this up quick. Verse 13, it says, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the Jordan, the bank of the Jordan. That Elisha took up the mantle means that Elijah did move on from this traumatic experience. But note, it says also, it says that in verse 13, he also took up. In other words, there was something else with him. The grief was still there. It's not like the grief was gone. It's not like everything was magically better all of a sudden. The grief and trauma were still there, but alongside the grief and the trauma was a decision to move forward with God's plan for his life. And I'd ask you tonight, have you perhaps become stuck in grief or trauma? Listen, no one, including God, is gonna force you to take up the mantle of his plan for your life. God's not gonna make you do it. Something you have to decide to do. You have to make a decision to answer the call. And so, what is God's plan for your life? And are you answering that call? If you don't know God's plan for your life, that's okay, but you should set a time some time to seek Him, right? Set aside daily time to just ask and say, Lord, just show me what the next step is. What's the next step in the plan? Because God doesn't hide those things from us. Our problem is either we don't like the answer, we don't like the plan He has for us, or we refuse to invest the time required to ask Him. So, I would encourage you, don't do either of those things. Set aside time if you don't know. And if you do know God's plan for your life, well, are you doing it? And if not, what's holding you back from doing so? Let's all stand. We didn't do verse 14, but we'll get to that next Sunday night, God willing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for real human stories like we read tonight. Real people just like us, walking through life just like us, dealing with challenges and struggles just like us. And Lord, (laughs) we may not experience a chariots of fire and horses on fire and a whirlwind catching us away but Lord you have a plan for us just like you had for Elijah and Elisha and Lord we don't want to miss that lesson I don't want to miss that lesson so Lord would you speak to every brother and sister here tonight who maybe doesn't know what, what you want them to do with their life would you give them insight as they seek you daily and just set aside time to do that. Would you show them what that is and help them to be rested in that? We sang that song, Jesus is better than anything, that they'd rest in that, that knowing you is enough, so whatever you call us to do, we should be okay with. And then, Lord, if there are some here tonight who are, they know what you've called them to do, but they're just not doing it because of, well, maybe it is grief or trauma, or maybe it's past failure, or maybe it's fear, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that your gifts and your calling are without repentance. You don't remove them, Lord. And that we can always come back to you and say, Lord, where do I pick this back up again? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.